This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy Woo! and sadness oh. and anger. Ah. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. Ah. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. Ah. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's gonna be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. A rabbi, a priest, and an imam walk into a bar. No, wait, imams don't drink. Most rabbis don't drink much either, come to think of it. Priests drink, at least in the movies, but mostly not in bars. Okay, so maybe nobody walks into a bar. How, when, and where are we all supposed to figure out how to get along? My guest today, who also happens to be an old good friend of mine, has an answer, or several. He's Jeffrey Israel, a professor of religion at Williams College and the author of a new book, Living with Hate in American Politics and Religion. He argues that pluralistic societies like the United States need two uneasy siblings, a strong political will to recognize and protect our common humanity, and also play spaces where we can give rein to the difficult feelings, anger, resentment, even hate that can't be erased by politics, a Beatles song, or just by wishing them away. In his generous and provocative book, Jeff mines Jewish American humor from Lenny Bruce, Philip Roth, and the sitcom All in the Family for models of rough and reflective play. Spike Lee's film, Do the Right Thing, gets a well-deserved star turn, too. And for a civics that can protect human dignity while making space for all the nastiness and alienation we have no choice but to live with, he looks to philosopher Martha Nussbaum, among others. It's a difficult conversation for an imperfect and imperfectible world, and the stakes couldn't be higher. So Jeff makes a bold case and invites us all to the table, rabbi, priest, imam, and the rest of us who don't fit into easy categories, to hash it out. Welcome to Think Again, Jeff. Thank you, Jason. That is a, an excellent description of uh, the argument of the book, and it's wonderful to be here with you. It's wonderful to have you here, and thank you. The argument gets very precise and somewhat complex at different times, and so I'm sure there are nuances that I missed, but I, what I understand to be the central idea is that we need the freedom, we need places we need kind of like to agree together that we have the right to play with those parts of ourselves and those feelings in ourselves that aren't necessarily always fit for public consumption or don't seem to be. You did an excellent job in focusing on the fact that there are really two tracks to the argument. There is the track that runs through political values that are the kinds of values that I hope will undergird the political institutions of our society. You call it political love, basically, exactly. right? That and we should all share political love and the willingness to set and stick to those values. Yes, and, and my hope is to promote an ideal of political love that really describes how people see each other and themselves, which is to say that they're owed certain things, opportunities to exercise certain fundamental human capacities. And that's something that I draw from Martha Nussbaum's work. Yeah, and here I think it would be useful for us to talk a little bit about how that, you know, how Martha Nussbaum's capabilities framework, which I guess was originally also developed in conjunction with Amartya Sen, is that right? That's right. How that differs from what we might generally think of as human rights right. or well, what it adds to the conversation, maybe. Yeah, it, it is a version of a human rights approach, the capabilities approach. And I guess what's most distinctive about it is this sense of trying to describe in substantive terms the range of capacities that a human being has that one would want to be able to exercise at least at some minimum threshold level to live the kind of life that we would imagine is a truly human life, a life of human dignity. So when you're assessing right. uh, how a nation is doing, for instance, 
instance, you want to look not just at the GNP, how much money the country is generating, or really aggregate in some way that anonymizes everyone's experience. You want to focus on what people can actually do and be in that society. Each individual, can they exercise their capacity to have healthy relationships, to expand their knowledge of the world, to take control over their environment through exercising a vote mm. and expressing themselves freely? What can a person really do and be? And that's what The View tries to look at. It goes to, like, play is one of those capacities. Yes. Exactly. And so one of the things that I'm trying trying to do is expand the significance of play on that list. Right. So on her original list, it's a fairly minimal idea of opportunities for recreation and leisure. We should have uh, parks. Yeah, we should have parks. And, <laughs> and I think that's really yeah, important. Yeah. But what I'm trying to do is suggest that actually this maybe easily missed capability is enormously important given the fact that our societies and American society is born in injustice. Right. And has a history where oppression is the rule, not the exception. And it's because of that, that we need this kind of time and space to live with and also allow to thrive in creative ways, in ways that are sometimes very disturbing, these deep forms of resentment and anger, the kind of unforgiving emotions that people maintain across group differences and group antagonisms. And the ideal that the book presents is one that imagines that even if we're doing the best we could possibly do, right. the best possible America will be a place where people want to even savor some of the ways in which they have experienced and come out of histories of oppression, uh, histories of loss, and that, in fact, the Jewish tradition is very exemplary of this kind of mode insofar right. as so many of the holidays are opportunities to remember instances of oppression uh, and never forgive. Uh, sort of reenactments, as it were. Absolutely. And, and that that's, we wouldn't want that to disappear. What's happened there is those experiences of loss and oppression and trauma, we might say, have been ritualized right. and become part of a good and thriving life. And it's a complex way in which living with your resentment, living with your anger and these negative emotions is actually something you want to be able to do if you're genuinely free. And, and so that gets kind of to an interesting tension that you talk about in the book between progress and memory that especially for historically oppressed people progress always runs the risk or is in some way in a sense potentially threatening to erase memory that's right and i have paradigmatically in my mind for instance uh, native american groups that will want to mourn when others are celebrating thanksgiving right and i think the america that i envision doesn't just sort of accept that as an unfortunate necessity. Uh, necessity. No, right, right. The, 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 it should be precisely a place where people can robustly mourn what was a catastrophe for their sense of who they are and their uh, historical consciousness. And that it, the kind of country that we should strive to be would be a welcoming place mm. for people to have that time and space to really dig in to their contrary, antagonistic, even perverse memories. And that progress can't mean that those memories are erased because what that means is that you're actually not invited to the progressive ideal right. if you're going to hold on to your resentment about what had been done to your people however many years ago. And, you know, that reminds me of something in uh, Adam Gopnik's recent book, A Thousand Small Sanities, I think it's called, you know, which is essentially a, a defense of humanistic, pluralistic, messy democracy. Mm. He quotes someone who I, and I'm forgetting who it is, as saying that grown-ups should be able to count to two, meaning that this is one of these kinds of situations where we somehow need to both have this ideal of political love, this practice of political love, let's say, where, say, a Native American group or individual would look at other Americans in terms of their human capacities 
and their vulnerability and sort of respect that common humanity and at the same time be able to hang on to rehearse express this kind of historical memory and resentment and that those two things which sometimes can seem to be in tension with one another nonetheless have to coexist that's exactly right and uh, it is a core aspect of the argument of this book to try to make tangible the value of developing the capacity to do those things at the same time. Right. And the model of love, it's very important to say, is not some kind of transcendent love, the love of deep affection, the Christ-like love. This is not the kind of love I have in the, mind. The Buddhist love of universal human empathy and compassion yeah, kind of thing. This is not the love that yeah, I have yeah, in mind. Yeah. Much as I think it's a lovely idea, and for one's, as I call it, non-public projects, Promoting that in the world is is a it can be a beautiful thing and, right. and, and incredibly valuable, but for the public ideal that I'm trying to describe, I think what we need is a what I sometimes want to call a mature love, which is much more every day. It's the love of parents and children and spouses and partners and friends, where there's just stuff lingers at the bottom, yeah. stuff simmers, and you don't figure it all out, you don't resolve it, and if you demand to resolve every lingering, simmering issue, you know you have gone off into a pathological mode that will only be destructive. And and, <laughs> and, and this is interesting because you, so you talk about these kind of like strains in American thought. You talk about kind of the apocalyptic imagination that imagines extremes and the end of the world. But then I think there is also an implicit and maybe somewhere in the book explicit kind of utopian imagination that imagines we can erase all of these problems and all kind of just dance in a circle and puts a pressure that I think you would see as harmful on people and societies to bury, erase, wish away these other feelings. That's Right. And there are three problems with liberalism that I identify in the book that I think being able to see and make tangible this domain of play are meant to respond to. Okay. And one of them is the missing link problem. Right. And it's the missing link problem that has to do with some of what I think are the psychological... Let's uh, add, I'm sorry, let's pull back and lay out yeah. what those, briefly, what those three things are. So there's the okay. problem of remainders. Exactly. Which is that these feelings and these cultural memories and so on, they stick around. And right? symbols and words, all of the detritus of being an unjust society just lingers in the way we talk, what we like, objects of art and sculptures and all of this sort of stuff. It yeah. doesn't, yeah, it's still around. And then there's the problem of, you don't call it proliferation, but it's basically, what is it? Replication. The problem of reproduction. Reproduction. Yeah. That new versions of these symbols and ideas and stereotypes and resentments and whatever, they continue to proliferate and, and appear. And that a person will want to reproduce them mm. in the next generation as part of what they think of as a good life for their children, right? That a Jewish person... Because it's part of their identity. Exactly. A Jewish person might want to impart some of the antagonistic dynamics between Jews and Gentiles to their children as part of developing a Jewish self-understanding. And that, that just means that a good life will actually reproduce the conflicts that maybe could be, someone might imagine, made to disappear if we just refused to teach them to our children. So as, yeah, yeah so as, as you beautifully put it in the book, I'm going to misquote you, but, you know, not to be subsumed into the American mayonnaise. <laughs> the white mayonnaise. Yeah, of yeah, something yeah. like no, that. Exactly. Yeah. But this, this uh, uh, I mean, this is, these are particularly complicated and fraught issues related to Jews and whiteness, but I think there are lots of stakes for Jews in the U.S. to sort of push back against the temptations of whitening and a politics of whiteness. And one of the ways that that happens is to maintain Jewish historical consciousness that sure. very much does preserve antagonisms that are both real and historical, but also productive, not productive in the sense of creating resources and what happened, but what have you, but creative 
human sources for expressive, beautiful life. Yeah, I mean, like it's often been observed that creativity happens best or most often within constraints. And so the constraints of culture are, in a sense, a creative force that produces unique and specific things within each culture. That's right. And, and this, in fact, connects to the missing link problem, okay. which is next. Right, right. Which is that, that the missing link problem is the desire to bring the end, is the sense that a liberal democratic regime produces, even among its secure bourgeois classes, maybe even especially, <clears throat> okay. uh, that starts to linger in one's mind. Maybe we can erase, eradicate all of this ugly history that makes us on some deep level corrupted by our being the product of historical oppression. Maybe we could actually leap past that missing link and get to some kind of post oppressive society, a utopia, a place where we no longer carry in all of the resentment mm. and all of what has been produced by historical conquest and, and brutality, etc. And basically what I say is okay. that that is a very, very dangerous ideal. It is often a justification for a kind of ruthlessness and mercilessness in politics. Right. And I also think it models what I think is an admirable view of love, which is to say that the love that should animate us as a political society is one that is unconstrained by, uncorrupted by all of this history. Right. And, and that kind of revolutionary love is anathema to my view, because my sense of love here is the love between people who are deeply flawed, between people who are mired in ugly histories, but who are reaching out to hold on to each other in solidarity, despite all of that, right. because that's all that we have, and that's where beauty and value and the capacity to live a dignified human life can come from, the love of flawed, vulnerable, dependent human animals, as Nussbaum would say. And so then this goes to, I think, one of the points that Martha Nussbaum makes in the foreword, and she is both very praising of your ideas and also pushing back here and there, which yeah. is, I have to, I've privately, and now I must publicly congratulate you on inviting that into your book, which I think is amazing, because you're also pushing back on her as right. well. And yeah, how do you see the balance within the framework that you're laying out here between embracing our messy, flawed humanity and trying to improve, you know, and trying to be better. The missing link problem is a problem of impatience, it seems to me. It's a problem of wanting to get to the end before you've, well, and also believing that there is an end, right? But is there a trajectory? Is there room for, if not perfectibility, then improvement? I definitely think that there's room for improvement. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, and I found this as a response from others and from multiple different directions, I guess, that the view maybe seems too optimistic to some people to even lay out such a tangible picture of what we want. Like a structure for for democracy exactly. and society that might, that if we all can just agree to it, it'll work. Yeah, or know? if we could all cultivate the, the sensibility, we could right. maybe push things in a better direction. And that American institutions are capable of such a thing. That I think seems <laughs> wildly optimistic Utopian, to many people, yeah. right? <laughs> and I have to say that I personally sit kind of in the middle. And I think I think one can see this in, in the writing of the book, I hope. I'm always using the language of trying to settle on, th through a process of reflection, values worth striving for, ideals worth striving for. Right. And I'm very much sitting in that place of striving and not imagining that what's worth striving for is worth striving for because it can be or is likely to be accomplished. Uh, so it's a and, directionality, a momentum. But there's also a sense of, I don't know, there's maybe something a bit more existentialist about kind of where I'm coming from with it, which is to say, I think on some level we have to figure out where we're going to stand in the world. And it's not going to be because we know for sure how it all ends up. And we certainly have no reason to think it ends up well. Sure. But even in spite of that, 
We ought to find some way to be resolute. We have to make some decisions. We have to decide why what seems wrong and bad is wrong and bad. And we have to decide, you know, where the money is going to go and who's going to have the power. We have to make adult decisions about how things unfold. That is the part of the crisis of being a human being. Sure. And, and so my view is figure out where you can stand with some confidence and conviction looking forward to worthy ends and commit yourself to that life. And it's worth it, even if we can only be optimistic in the most limited way. And it's because of this that I often have ringing in my ears a line attributed to Kafka, where he says, oh, there's hope. There's an infinite amount of hope, <laughs> but not for us. <laughs> and and, and you know, somehow that still feels like where I am personally and where the book is coming from, that there's a buoying quality to having conviction about something that you've settled on as, well, this seems like a reasonable way to move forward, a way to amplify what we seem to care about and what justice seems to be, and then to commit yourself to it, but without the expectation that it all works out in the end, and more a sense of, let's try this, because these values are worth pursuing, because they express our deepest sense of what is good and right and beautiful. You know, we live in a world now, especially with social media, especially with Twitter, we live in a world where experience and ideology and concepts are packaged in very compelling and viral and catchy ways, right? And that privileges ideologies that are definitive, that often tend toward intolerant or totalitarian or utopian or in some way or other extreme. And it's very interesting to me to see because, you know, your book is one of several recently, and it's also a long, in a long thread of thought that's been emerging for me over the course of this show, which is now four years old, of the need for and the almost the ridiculousness of a politics of of complexity, a politics of ambiguity, a politics of not knowing, you know, and how that's supposed to play in the same space as these ideologues. I, I don't know how in the end <laughs> to live in that world. And I sometimes think I'm failing at it. <laughs> so far as I don't participate in social media. I mean, it may be apocalyptic on my part yeah. to think that that's the only thing that's no, happening. I I mean, under, we are having this yeah, conversation. Well, exactly. You are writing books. You know, <laughs> and, like. but, but, but I have the worry. I have the worry. But it's <laughs> yeah. because of that that I'm so committed in my teaching, for instance, and in my relationships with just sitting down and having those long, drawn-out conversations that can last over lifetimes. Right. I mean, the, the conversations that you and I had in Jerusalem, it makes me emotional to think about it, actually, because it was such a beautiful time for and let's, me. And let's tell, let's tell yeah. the audience, this was, how many years ago was this? I we were both in Jerusalem. 97, 98. Yeah, 97, yeah. 98. I mean, we would go out into these sort of park areas, and we would just linger, and from literary ideas and philosophical concepts, and then just, you know, bullshitting around and having a good time and being ridiculous. I mean, but it was like the long arc, you know? Yeah. And and, and that, pulling everything from everywhere and on the streets of Jerusalem where you have apocalyptic preachers and we would stand in front of them sure. watching watching those guys talk about the end of the world. Oh my God. But this is, I mean, this to me is the model. I mean, it's, it's not, I mean, that makes it sound so abstract, but you know, this is living with people, you know, this is having yeah. loving relationships, you know, this is where it all kind of reduces to, in I guess the best sense, which is people kind of holding on to each other's hands and continuing to talk and continuing to kind of work it out and ask questions about, I don't know, is this what I really think? Is this who I really am? Right. What do I look like from your eyes? And aren't you amazing with all of what you're working on and not figuring out and what I'm not figuring out? That life together with others, right? That seems to me where the thinking needs to come from and the kind of touchstone where the thinking needs to go. And th there's an idea, and I hope this will be worth it, and I think I can make it really short, in sure, John sure. Rawls, who's also a very much a, an inspiration for yes. the book, of reflective equilibrium. And all it means, really, is that you want to kind of run your ideas up and down a ladder 
of how general and how specific, right? I have a core intuition about something that just feels very idiosyncratic to me. And then I have some very abstract idea that it feels like everyone should pursue and makes a certain kind of coherent sense. Right. And you're constantly looking for a, an equilibrium where roughly your sense of the ideal and your very specific sense of your intuitions kind of match up and hang together in a reasonable way. Okay. And, and when you can find that point, you are sitting in a place of reasonable conviction. Could we get an example maybe? For some reason, what I want to talk about is some of the housing and school desegregation projects, okay. for instance, in the 70s. Not that I know an incredible amount of details about all of that. Sure. But, but I can imagine, just because there are really interesting ways in which Jews figured in those political arguments right. uh, and ended up being less progressive than people might assume Jews would have been on those issues, that you could imagine that someone's immediate intuitions have to do with, you know, well, my kid and this school, and I can't have ch this kind of change, and who are these people? Right, and, right. right. And so your, your intuitions might be protective and very parochial and very immediate, but then you want to jump up to a higher level of abstraction okay. and think about, well, what, what kind is of justice here? Yeah, what yeah. is justice related to public education for kids? What are other parents from other places with other backgrounds and other histories feeling about their kids, right? right? And then it's going to clash again with, well, but my particular situation has all these specifics and it's not really good for me. And then the idea is you keep kind of trying to figure out where your intuitions and that ideal can connect. Got it. Right? And it, it might mean that you push your intuitions to expand your sense of who and what matters beyond what you would have initially assumed mattered. Right. Uh, but it also means that you might regulate your highest ideal in a way that accounts more for places you just can't go or things you just can't descend to, even if they seem sort of abstractly okay. compelling. Okay, so that's really interesting to me because I think about this a lot. I think about the fact that, you know, we want to overcome our prejudices. We want, and we want to be our best selves and we want to uh, aspire to high ideals. But yeah, that very much has to be in a, a dialogue of self-respect and like a self-empathy in a sense, you know, and that and that we sometimes feel the pressure, uh, social pressure from others, political pressure, I don't know, guilt, whatever it might be, to run rush, roughshod over that rather than taking those those feelings seriously. And indeed, in the end, those feelings may be misguided or maybe there's some other way out of them, but it does seem to me that they need to be acknowledged. And before I think, we can do anything absolutely. worthwhile. Yeah. And, and I think it's a reason why we have to acknowledge it comes from what Rawls identified as the value of stability in political thought, which is to say, if you ignore all that stuff at the idiosyncratic, personal, intuitive level, it will come back to haunt you. <laughs> right, 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 right. If you think you fixed it at the high abstract level, right, but you didn't touch base with where your where your intuitions are, where your gut is, right, right, that stuff will out. It will come back, a and then what are you going to do with it? So if you make your policy, if you make your principles and your project and your political ideals such that they include more of this range of the register of generality and particularity, your sort of your gut and then your highest ideals, then you have something that is more stable and is less likely, the hope is, to produce reaction formations. And I think what our current situation involves politically is just extreme reaction formations all over the place, just pulling and pulling people all right, uh, right. Uh, around their intuitions and ideals in ways that have very little balance and very little hope for stability. I mean, recently there was a conversation on this listserv that a lot of audio people belong to in New York and across the country. It's for podcasters, radio people. And you had this one guy, this white guy, who someone posted for a job and they had a phrase in the posting that said, I'm pretty closely paraphrasing here. This is not a direct quote. 
full range of, we encourage underrepresented voices, LGBTQ people, and anyone who isn't a white hetero male to apply. Now, I think there's a perfectly reasonable case to be made that that simply meant that they were just encouraging those other people to apply, you know, Absolutely. and that they were saying it in a somewhat playful and snarky way or whatever. But this guy who was an older white male who had been in radio and has, and then like radio gave way to podcasting and then he's found it hard to get a job or whatever. He wrote this very long and cogent and I thought not angry or bitter or annoying kind of response where he said, this basically says to me, you have no chance whatsoever at this job. Then you got a lot of people that were just like, wow, what a drug white privilege is. The guy ultimately got kicked off the listserv and then people cried for him to come back. I respect people's right to be angry about the things that, you know, they have a right to be angry about, about injustice, oppression, et cetera. But it it very much hurts me when someone tries to come from a reasonable conversational place and everyone is like, just shut up, you're a racist. My sense of white supremacy, to put it in a very pithy way, is just the fundamental un spoken unconscious acceptability of a kind of hierarchy of power where white people people from europe have most of the money most of the power and this is just a assumed to be a kind of reasonable outcome in history probably they were just really smart and and, (laughs) and creative and so they deserve to somehow have all this power and money and that's just how it worked out that's just how it worked out Eh, could you know well that's that's crazy right right i mean that that, this is you know the world has been built yeah there's an infrastructure of injustice domination and brutality and and that's how we got the world that we have. Right. It's not a good, reasonable world. It's a world that is a product of grotesque historical injustice, right? So that's the starting position. And that's going to leave us with a lot of uncomfortable conversations and a lot of anger and difficulty figuring out how to redress that history and also make changes that are going to prevent that fundamental acceptability from being acceptable any longer. Yeah. Now, in order to do that, at the same time, we cannot, should not give up on the profound value of human compassion. And compassion includes a starting position that asks when confronting any other what is it like to, to be them? To be them and to be a center of experience that is their place in the world. And to imagine that they may suffer, may have had loss, may torture themselves psychologically in all kinds of ways. Just to imagine that they're living a human life like you're living a human life. Right. And they've been lucky in lots of ways and unlucky in lots of other ways. And it's not to make an equivalence of all people's experiences, but it's a a way of saying that the starting position needs to be to reach out with compassion when we're trying to do the real practical work of making decisions in public and professional life. In the play space, in the domain of play, you can just... I don't know if we're allowed to curse with it in this kind of yeah, format. you may curse. <laughs> I mean, but, but this is know, a play space. This is a play, right. I mean, in the domain of play, the idea is that you know, fuck that. You know, you just right. say all kinds of nasty things about you know without the intention of accomplishing anything. Right. But just to relish Vent or yeah, whatever, and, yeah. it's, and and not even just just as a small like not to kind of get it out of your system. Right. But for the just the sheer goodness of being that version of yourself and letting right. it be, letting it exude, letting it become new creative things and jokes and Be, art because right? it, because it's true and because it's there yeah, and you it's know? part of you yeah, and, it's, yeah, and yeah. it's part of you flourishing part of the what i'm trying to help cultivate is the capacity to distinguish between when we need to constrain some of that and lead with compassion as you pointed out you called it bracketing you talked about how like a doctor constrains their sexuality for example in an interaction with a patient you put a bracket around all that stuff exactly when you this go is, into we, the, the public political love space this yeah. is exactly right we have a, a range of everyday ways that are very recognizable where we say look 
you need to constrain yourself to a certain kind of seeing and interacting. And however else you might see and interact with people, that stuff isn't welcome here. Right. You need to do right. your job, right? And and learn how to keep that stuff out of the interaction and out of the room. Because it's not going right? to take us anywhere where and, we need to go. And, and it would be yeah. wrong. Yeah, yeah, you know, it yeah, would be yeah, an abuse. Yeah, it yeah, would yeah, be, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And so figuring out how those frameworks work yeah. and, for instance, how to be compassionate in dealing with the very complicated project of responding to historical injustice through yeah. diversification of uh, the workplace, right? Figuring out how to make compassion govern that realm when there's so much lingering anger is a major project that we all face and that we all have to keep trying to do well. And simultaneously recognize that there need to be the places where you go where you don't have to be a nice person, where you don't have to right. constrain these aspects that are very much you, but you can use them creatively and play with them. And I guess part of the model of what it means to be a citizen, right. uh, not in the technical sense of having citizenship, but what it means to be a member of the polity that I'm suggesting is that one of the things that you need to be able to do is to make this distinction between what are the values that should govern these kind of public interactions, and then where are the times and places where you can let these other aspects of yourself flourish simultaneously, but in ways that are not instrumental and don't have the purpose of thwarting the goals of political love and justice. You know, one question I have that I'm sure comes up, and I think this also speaks to something Nuss Nussbaum says as well in the introduction, like when we think about these play spaces and this kind of rough play, a lot of the examples you give, and you and I have talked about this a little bit, these are sort of like edifying. The tricky bit, I think the big, what are those things called? Horses that you do, that jumpers jump over in those jumping races? I don't know. The big horse for people to jump, the wooden, you know, yeah, thingamabob. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in and, the Olympics? Yeah, when they run and they and jump over the thing. And they they yeah, jump yeah, over yeah, the wooden yeah. thing. Okay. It's the big a, one, a horse? The big, I think it's called a horse. Anyway, the big one of those <laughs> that for people to jump over yeah. is, yes. I think it's easy for people to understand comedy like Lenny Bruce's that kind of like shines a, a sort of self-aware, potentially self-deprecating light on all of our foibles, right? Or the foibles of a specific group that you're often the speaker or the comedian is part of, right? And for us to understand at this point, historically oppressed groups, like having a play space within their own cultural bubbles, right? What's harder is the idea of what would the equivalent of that be for non-oppressed groups? And are they supposed to do that? The domain of play is an artifice, right? It's a framing that we posit right. through an act of interpretation from the political perspective, okay? Okay. So inherently, there is no activity that is inherently play. Right. Okay. The idea of the domain of play that I'm trying to describe is one where we decide to interpret some activity, ritual, event, work of art, etc., as an invitation to play or a time, a duration of play. We are putting a frame around it and essentially saying this is not for real in the sense that we're not going to kill each other. Right, exactly. We're, yeah. we're say, saying something like this does not mean what it would mean right. if it weren't play. Like, the, you know, the person on the stage is not actually trying to kill <laughs> right, his right, uncle. Right, right, right. right, right. <laughs> right? right. Like, you don't have to run on stage and be like, no, stop. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's, you know, we all agree that something else is happening here where all of the words all of the intentions all have this special kind of meaning that is a play meaning, right? right? Where right. we're experiencing it just for the sake of experiencing it. And so what happens then from my perspective is that as public cultural critics, as I call them, right. Right, when we decide to sort of take on this role of a public cultural critic, we look out on social and cultural life in America and we say, so what's going on? Right? And there's a, it's chaos. And then we draw a circle around something and we say, I'm going to surposit, interpret this as play. And then the next step is to give it a meaning if you're a public cultural critic. Right. Right? 
And you might find things, and these are the things that I point to in the book, comedy by Lenny Bruce, Philip Ross, Portnoy's Complaint, Lear's All in the Family. And I say, look, these are special instances of play on my interpretation, where they allow us to imagine the simultaneous experience of the deep resentment and irresolvable conflicts of American culture and history and political love. Right. And that's why they're right. chosen. Right. They're just these special moments when somebody pulled that off. Those two things somehow, yeah, come together beautifully right. in beautiful like Because harmony. of a virtuoso play right. production. And so the public cultural critic, I kind of imagine as a person deciding to look around and find those moments and then showcasing them by, sure. by presenting them to the public as reviews or books or, or in so conversations then, so on then podcasts. So that, that promotes to the extent that you can promote that outside of there just being individual geniuses who come up with these things, that promotes that kind of, or privileges in a sense that kind of play. Right. And that's the kind of playing on that interpretation right. that we can, we should, for instance, like on The Family, and even Lenny Bruce, I think, put on a stamp, put in the Smithsonian. Right, right, right. right. Have, this is what we, yeah, one thing is, we can be about. Exactly. You know? yeah, this yeah. is what we're going to, what we is going to be. Right. Right. And, but notice on what, what my view is trying to contribute is that the we here is a we that is simultaneously engaged in irresolvable uh, right, uh, a emotional frag conflicts we. Yeah, and yeah. capable of political love in spite of those conflicts. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. by building those into the public imaginary, by saying, you know, we're not just soldiers holding a flag. We are also these people who can live together and care about each other, even though we will never resolve some of our deep differences, right? Building that into the public sense of who we are is what that dynamic mm. between the public cultural critic and what bubbles up as play can accomplish. Now, right. beyond that, there are also these kinds of playing that are internal to groups that are really not for that. I it's, kept but, thinking uncomfortably, I have to say, of yeah. minstrel shows. You It'd know, be hard to imagine. I kept thinking like, yeah. like that was an instance yeah. of horrible, horrifying, you know, we are glad it is gone instance of a kind of cultural play with stereotypes and resentments. And my view does not suggest that somehow people should be somehow prevented from engaging in criticism of that material. Sure. Right. And criticism of other people's play. But at the same time, it does suggest a certain value to finding a way to live with playing that is just never going to feel acceptable to you. Right. But that if you can see it as play, insofar as, as it is genuinely play, it is part of somebody's thriving. And if you I, want that thriving for yourself, you should want that for them. That's, yeah. that's right. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and look... I mean, I, the kinds of things that you're talking about, like, for instance, uh, I think Civil War reenactment has always fascinated me as an example of this. Right. They, you know, I have no connection to that. It doesn't move me. But there are large numbers of people for whom this is a medium for their thriving. And the question is, can they do that and simultaneously be the kind of people who we can share in genuine reciprocal right. political love right. with, right? And I guess my it, hope and my idea is, I'll bet you they can, because I think that we do this all the time. We have all sorts of nasty, perverse things that are part of the ways we like to thrive, the little ways that we like to sit with ourselves, right? And with right, little groups right. and be unadmirable, <laughs> right? And be in ways that we could never explain to anyone else right. in a way that they would get it and endorse it and do anything but want to condemn it, right? Mm -hmm. This is what we do. So the goal should be not to somehow eradicate dressing up like a Civil War soldier and to 
do Civil War reenactment, but rather to raise up the value of being able to do that simultaneously with the capacity to see every other person living within the United States as a vulnerable, dependent human animal who deserves a life with others where they can exercise the full range of capabilities that are befitting a dignified human life, right? And I believe that people can actually do those two things at the same time. And basically, society as a whole has to determine if there are limits, you know, what, right. what are those limits? And I mean, because, be. you yeah, know, if exactly. there are descendants of Nazis reenacting the burning of Jews, like, <laughs> we might collectively agree that maybe you can't have that kind of play and also live in polite society with Jews. Maybe yeah. you can. I don't know. Yeah. But, and I, but I don't know. I mean, this is the thing. Is, yeah. is It's not one of these things where, <laughs> look, I've got the principles and the rules and yeah, we can yeah, go yeah, out yeah, and we can but check But these off, things have to be negotiated. Ha- exactly. That's what we have to engage to live together. Exactly. Yeah. We have to engage in relational, collective, interpretive exercise of our interpretive judgment. Right. And this, by the way, I'll have to, I'm going to do a little bit of a plug for the humanities here, which is, this is part of what we're doing when we're teaching the humanities, right? right? Which is to say, cultivating your capacity to exercise interpretive judgment, right? We don't know where it all ends up, but we can live in a life together where we're making judgments that are not necessarily true or false or even correct or incorrect or right or wrong, right? But they are judgments that on balance attempt to account for our values that go along a range related to as aesthetics and claims about knowledge, but also claims about the kind of life we want to live together and political values. We need to make interpretive judgments about these things. It will be messy and we won't always get it right. And sometimes we'll feel like we're allowing a space for play, but what we're really doing is allowing an alternative trajectory or strategy for a certain kind of instrumental politics, gotcha, right? Yeah. And and I don't know exactly how to do it in every case, but what I'm trying to make tangible is the project of trying to do that, dif- make that differentiation. And erring on the side of uh, tolerance. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. So we have time to watch one surprise video, which is uh, for the audience, the shtick of the second part of the show. We watch a video from Big Think's archives. It's a short interview on one idea, and it's a conversation starter for me and Jeff, and we haven't seen it before. It's been picked for us, and we're going to watch it now and then go where we go. Let's do it. This is from David Epstein, who is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World and the Sports Gene. And the video is called Lateral Thinking, The Reason You've Heard of Nintendo and Marvel. One of the researchers I spoke with was himself an innovator and picked by R&D Magazine as the Innovator of the Year, but he also studied innovation. And what he found in studying patent databases is maybe a change in the importance of specialists and generalists over time. And he defined this by looking at people's work histories. So creators who were very specialized did all their work in one or a small number of areas of technology as classified by the US Patent and Trademark Office. Creators who were more broad spread their work across a large number of technology classes, sometimes merging many into one project. And since about the 1990s, you know, the explosion of the knowledge economy, what he found was that these more generalist inventors, or sometimes they were even polymaths with some depth and breadth, were making larger and larger and more and more important contributions, whereas the specialists who were still very important were often making less impactful contributions. And he thinks that this is part of the rise of rapid communication technologies, that there's information created in many cases by specialists is so rapidly and thoroughly disseminated that there are many more opportunities than ever before to invent something new by taking things that aren't new and combining them in new ways. And one of my favorite examples of this is a Japanese man by the name of Gunpei Yokoi, who didn't score well in his electronics exams, so he had to settle for a job in Kyoto as a machine maintenance worker at a playing card factory, while a lot of his peers went off to big companies in Tokyo. He realized that he wasn't equipped to work at the cutting edge, 
but that so much information was easily available that specialists were overlooking that he could just combine older and well-understood technologies in ways that specialists couldn't see because they didn't have a broad enough view. In doing that, he started a toy and game operation at that playing card company, and playing card company was called Nintendo, and he continued combining old technologies for his magnum opus, the Game Boy. All of the technology was long out of date by the time it appeared, and yet it became the best-selling video game console of the 20th century. Yokoi called his creative philosophy lateral thinking with withered technology. What he meant by lateral thinking was taking information from one area that may not be new, but just bringing it somewhere else where suddenly it's new to that area, combining technologies in ways that other people hadn't. By withered technology, he meant this older, well-understood, often cheaper technology so he didn't have to worry about competing at the cutting edge. And that's a nice story, but I think it also fits with multiple studies of patent research that show in many cases the biggest impacts come not from the people who drill the deepest into a technological class, but those who spread their work across a large number of technological classes. And incidentally, there are analogous findings in other industries. In a really interesting study of comic book creators, researchers guessed at what would make comic book creators make commercially valuable comics and also what would make them more likely to make a blockbuster comic. And it was a great study because, because they could track the value of comic books both up and down, it didn't suffer from the survivor bias that a lot of studies of excellence do. And they posited pretty intuitively that the resources of a publisher would make a creator better, or their years of experience would, the number of comics they had made previously, and they were wrong, wrong, and wrong. The most important factor was the number of different genres that a creator had worked in. Genres range from comedy and crime to fantasy, adult, horror, nonfiction. And it was true that you could make a team and combine teams of genre specialists to get some of that diversity, but that was actually pretty limited. So if you had an individual who had worked in two genres, you were better off having a team of three who had worked in one genre each. But after four genres, then an individual who had worked in more than four genres did better than a team who had the same genre experience by platoon. So you could not create, you could not recreate the diverse experience of an individual entirely with a team of specialists. So these researchers named their paper Superman or the Fantastic Four. They said if you can find a Superman who has worked in a very diverse array of genres, do it. And if not, then create a fantastic team with diverse genre experience by Platoon. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to out myself here. I really don't care about corporate innovation, but, 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 but. but Not exactly my interest. Yeah, but what I, but I want to, but I guess where I want to go with this is it's a, a very different direction. I want to talk about us. So when I met you, we were in Jerusalem. We were kind of like the welcome back Cotter class of the <laughs> Ulpan learning, learning Hebrew, quote unquote, learning Hebrew, right. but basically like passing notes and guffawing. And, but aside from that, what struck me immediately about you, like I was there, I'm on, I was on like a quasi spiritual Jutalian boy <laughs> intellectual journey, right? Where I was trying to like reconnect with my Jewish roots through biblical studies and trying to figure out some kind of synergy between my intellectual attraction to many of the ideas that I understood as Jewish and a kind of heart path for, for life. And by contrast, you were on a very specific program. Like you were there, I remember you getting a stack of like, <laughs> you know, 20 books, you know, of yes. German Jewish philosophy, <laughs> Franz Rosenzweig notably, yeah. and just disappearing for three days <laughs> And reading them off. Um, I was a faster so reader then. I have remained a generalist. You know, this show has afforded me the privilege of talking to differing specialists and bringing that as a value to the audience and saying, okay, let's go into all of these different things. And I don't want to say that by contrast, you're a specialist. I remember those days very, very well. <laughs> I remember those stacks of books. I can even picture them. Do you still read like that? I do okay. uh, a little bit. And uh, I think I'm lucky to be able to do that. College life, small yeah, town. Yeah. Exactly. I guess where this has me thinking is 
very much about higher education and what we do at a place like Williams College where I teach. Because I often, when I'm teaching, say, if your question, even your driving questions, can be answered by searching Google, then it's not really my concern. That's not what we're doing in class. <laughs> right, right, right. Right? right. It, You're not giving people information. Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. I think this is connected to this video, which sure. is to say that the information is out there. And collecting the information and collating it and getting it organized, that's a specific kind of project that maybe computers could do. You, you, right. You it's, know? Not, it's, it's, it's sometimes necessary. It's not that interesting. That's right. Yeah. Uh, uh, to me. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I also don't think it's a... I don't think it would be worthwhile to simply cultivate people's capacity to manipulate information. Right. Right. What we're doing instead is asking them to engage in a rich interpretive life. Right. Right. Where they're trying to understand themselves and trying to express themselves. And this connects to our experience, actually, Jerusalem. Cool, yeah. Because this is the way that I felt about you, which was as sort of fundamentally, in my mind, a kind of poet, intellectual troubadour. Mm. And, <laughs> and we should tell the audience that like, we would go out you know, into the streets and sing. Oh, uh, for sure. Yeah, I was playing like Pogue songs the Pogues and stuff. Yeah. and Leonard Cohen yeah. and um, Tom Waits. Yep. Right, and I believe you introduced me to Tom Waits, oh, who, who, I, who I still okay. listen Passing to. Passing the a bit. favor on that someone <laughs> did for me. Yeah. Uh, but that life that you were already living, and that is really manifest in what you're doing now, that range, it was always sort of seated in a sense of curiosity and openness to a world that was expansive and mysterious and fascinating that you wanted to engage with and then express yourself in, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and when I think about what I'm doing with students, mm. I think to myself, I want to get them to at least be able to sit in that place. Right. And, you know, we're often compelled in the humanities in the academy to sort of make the case for why it's important. Right. And, and I resent that often because I think it's valuable for its own sake and I'm happy to have that conversation. But since it's been raised in this way right. uh, by the video that we watched, I will say that there is also a secondary instrumental value to finding your way to that place where you're open to the true eclecticism, diversity, chaos, range of meanings in the world. You're open to it in a vulnerable way where you want to be an interpreter and a contributor, right? And that that's a place where content comes from, I guess, is the way people would mm, talk about it, right? Mm, That's mm. where substantive, mm. qualitative meanings emerge that are the reasons why people want to connect, why people want to watch this or sit with this and see, savor that. See, see, within academia, like within the path that I saw you on and that I still see you on when I, when I read your book, you do that from within a tradition. You enter a stream yes. and you immerse yourself in all of the sort of relevant voices in that stream and you know whatever reaching out that you do you do f to a certain extent from within that you are having to respond to other people's arguments you are having to cite intellectual predecessors yeah. you know i've got my gurus you know dostoevsky whatever you know shakespeare you know but i the i gurus. feel like i never <laughs> yeah but i feel like i never had either the patience or whatever it is i or or just the temperament to like slot myself into one stream like that was something i found very interesting about yeah. you that you like were so sure at that time that like this is the river i want to swim in you yeah know? that's a lovely way to describe it and very much how i think about it which is to say that you know rather than serving a discipline per se right in the way that some very professionalized approaches to academic life manifest i very much felt myself as entering into a set of ongoing conversations, mm -hmm. right? And there were just some people, most of them dead, <laughs> who were <laughs> at the table, you right, know? Right. And then my intellectual life as a scholar has involved 
bringing other people to the table, allowing some people to drift away from the table, right, 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 <laughs> right? Right, right? And then feeling like on some level, what I wanted to express would take responsibility for the folks who were at that table. Right. So Franz Rosenzweig on some deep level is always a little bit at the table. Maybe he's a little further away now. Right. 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 As John Rawls became a, a very proximate person at that table, Martha Nussbaum became a proximate person at that table, Leo Strauss, Franz Fanon, Michael Waltzer, and then Philip Roth and mm. Saul Bellow and Lenny Bruce. Right. And these people, what ended up happening for me is a kind of process of curating the table, right. setting myself and trying to be responsible in, a, in conversations where some of the people at my table were at their own table, right, 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 and right, trying right, to be responsible to what they want to talk about at their table. Right, right. right. Like, where, how, like Lenny Bruce wouldn't necessarily fit into this stream, exactly. this, this obvious stream of modern Jewish philosophy. Uh, exactly. And American political yeah, thought. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But the model of a conversation the model of the kind of conversations we have always had, the model of the conversation that I have with Martha Nussbaum, who wrote the foreword, where we you know, don't agree on things altogether, but we do, and we have go back and forth, right? That model, I think, can be a version of a scholarly trajectory right. that really savors and takes responsibility for this sense of ongoing conversations. So at a certain level, you allow the conversation to erupt in new ways, right. but maybe what's distinctive about the particular scholarly element of this is that you take a particular responsibility for the length of that of those multiple conversations behind you and you try to be responsive to it, not to get overwhelmed by it. But to know what went before. Yeah, so that you're in yeah. you're, you're you're working across time and space to be in fruitful conversations and contribute something maybe interesting yourself. And that is a play space. Absolutely. And I think that, again, like many activities that one would want to describe as play, it toggles back and forth, sometimes in really transient ways, right? Like, like, like where, it can get really real sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Like all of a sudden yeah, yeah, you're like, yeah, well, yeah. no, 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 this is our idea. These are ideas that are going to affect how we vote right. and what, which school we send our kid to. Right. You know what I mean? But then it switches and we're and we're doing something where it's not clear what the goal is, and it would be a distraction to stop everything and decide what the goal is. Right. And oftentimes what I'm doing in a classroom, what I'm trying to do, is also cultivate the capacity to switch around like that. Right. To say like, wait a minute, we're doing something else here where who knows what we're doing? Our emotions are coming out on the table, we're digging into a text and taking apart all of its different elements and taking positions that we don't believe in and just dancing around. And then all of a sudden it'll become, wait a minute, that it actually has this really important consequence. And then we have to shift and take on a different mode, but then we ease back and, and learning how to do that, that is a virtue of democratic citizenship, I want to say. That has not quite been, I don't think, made tangible in the way that I'm trying to make it tangible. And, and if it has, great, uh, that, that is an, uh, an ally to my view. And for that reason, the universities need to remain, and this is like the oldest fucking conversation ever, you know, that, you know, the liberal arts is so important. I think the universities need to remain places where, where this kind of play can happen without, I mean, yes, everyone should be aware of the consequences of their ideas, but there should not be the threat that if you play too openly, that's it. You're a terrible person and you must leave forever. From my own personal kind yeah. of where I am, my non-public project, as I would describe it in my book, right. uh, very much sees intellectual play as one of the great human goods. Yeah. Just as a fundamental human good that is intrinsically valuable. Yeah, it's but, a joy. It's a joy. Yeah. And it should and it should be, I feel like, I mean, not everyone, as you were saying yesterday when we were talking, is an intellectual. And need but not it, be. Yeah. But, but intellectual play, which doesn't necessarily have to take the form of talking about books or whatever, the play of ideas should be a birthright of our species. It is. I, I mean, agree. You know. I feel that very much. And, yeah. and I do think that some of the issues about how we can open ourselves up to this kind of play in higher education, for instance, 
relate to what we start, uh, started the conversation with, which is the fact that we really need to be moving on two tracks. Right. To the extent that we can be- embed genuine political justice and its concurrent political love in our political institutions, in the institutions of the basic structure of society, right. to the extent that we can do that, people will feel freer and more open to rougher play. Because right? they'll know that they, they have a safe space, as it were. Yeah, and, and they'll know that when they leave the domain of play, yeah. they are always seen with fundamental respect and dignity. And, you know, again, we don't accomplish this perfectly, but the further we get with the genuine political justice of our political institutions, we should simultaneously see more domains of play with rougher, totally unpredictable and deeper play that bubbles up from the full range of experiences that we have, in many cases, I'm sure not even heard from yet. Right. Because they're not even a radar screen, the people who are suffering and being oppressed that have simply not become salient as concerns for the elite classes who decides which people and which sufferers get our attention. So it opens up potentialities that we can't even begin to predict. Jeff Israel, or Jeffrey, as your book would have it, my old friend and intellectual play partner, it's been lovely talking to you today. Thank you so much for coming to Think Again. Thank you, Jason. This has been a truly a great pleasure. And um, I want you to say the full name of the book, if you can remember it, because <laughs> it's a long one. It is Living with Hate in American Politics and Religion, How Popular Culture Can Help Diffuse Intractable Differences. So that is it for another episode of Think Again. I would love to hear from you. If you're a longtime listener or you're checking in for the first time, you can find me through my website, Jason Gotts, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. Uh, you can sign up for my mailing list and or write me directly an email. And I, I think I always respond. I certainly always try to respond. Um, and I think I may have responded to every email I've received, at least at least the first one. I do my best. So we'll be back next week with something completely different, and I hope you can join me. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.